This is Condopedia. Here, we talk about everything related to condo law in Ontario, with hopefully some humor mixed in. Well, welcome everyone to our February 2023 Condo Crunch. We have a tremendous turnout here today. Thank you so much, everybody, for attending. It is a really tricky issue that we're going to be talking about today, and so I'm not surprised we have a lot of interest in this subject. We're going to be tackling enforcement today, and as we go through our session, each of our lawyers is going to try and tackle some of the key issues that need you need to be thinking about as you are faced with enforcement processes. We're not able to give a complete roadmap of exactly what an enforcement process looks like in every case, because every case really is unique and different on their circumstances. But what we are going to try and do is start off with a guide of the general steps that you would see in a typical enforcement process, uh, typical as, as best as we can see it, and then get del delve into some of the other key issues that you're going to be thinking about as you move through enforcement processes. A quick reminder that today's session is a condo crunch, so we are just delivering information as best we can, followed up by a podcast at a later date. We can't take questions during our condo crunches because we are limited in our time, and we want to make sure that we can provide as much information as we can. At the end of our session today, we are going to have some some thoughts from Melinda, who's going to share some con special considerations in relation to violence and harassment, particularly in light of the recent tragedy uh, in Vaughan in December. So do uh, stay for the end of that session, and we'll provide some additional thoughts on where we're going forward um, at the end of that session as well. So let's jump right in then today. We do have a lot of information to share, and we're going to start off with Nicole. Nicole, if you want to join me on screen here, Nicole is going to provide us with our general overview. Again, a guide, uh, not a specific roadmap, but a guide of the key things that we're going to be looking at. So Nicole, over to you. Thanks so much, Nancy. Uh, so I'm going to begin at the beginning. I'm going to go over the typical initial steps to be taken when a condominium corporation first receives a complaint or otherwise becomes aware of a dispute or compliance issue in the community. And I'm going to discuss ways to approach the situation that may help avoid escalation. The key here is that deciding how to approach a situation always involves exercising judgment every time. Even if you're dealing with similar issues repeatedly, noise complaints, non-compliant parking, unauthorized storage, it's important to assess and reassess each new issue on its own merits and decide on an appropriate approach. Making that judgment call is a skill. Developing procedures for responding to certain issues can be helpful. Similarly, template letters exist that can be a helpful tool in responding to certain issues. But there are many circumstances that these tools should really be used as guide. How you approach a noise complaint, for instance, may include certain key steps, but the condominium's response will vary depending on the specific circumstances of the complaint. So with that in mind, I'm going to go over enforcement procedures in a general way, but again, these steps may not fit every case. Once a condominium becomes aware of a violation of the corporation's governing documents, in most cases, it will be a good idea to start with a letter. If possible, uh, you want to open dialogue to try to work with the parties involved toward resolving the issue. Keep in mind that this, this correspondence is a way to be open with the owner and the tenant if applicable. So you can be direct and firm about the concerns, but where appropriate, you can also be courteous, invite discussion or questions, and make sure that you provide sufficient detail in the letter to explain the breach and how it needs to be remedied. And there are a few other things to keep in mind. Number one, think about records. If you're dealing with complaints from other residents, complainants should be asked to clearly record their complaints in writing to the corporation. This creates a written record of the violation. As a general rule, complainants also need to understand that their complaints might be seen by the alleged violator. An alleged violator normally has the right to see complaints that have been made against them. There may be rare cases involving very real threats of harm where complaints can be kept hidden or anonymous, but in general, the enforcement process cannot work properly without being able to disclose the complaints when this becomes necessary. Your correspondence, of course, also creates a record of the matter in dispute, as do any board meeting minutes where the matter was discussed. These records can become important at later stages if further action becomes necessary. 
These records should show the reasonable efforts made by the board to resolve the matter. Number two, think about who you need to address the letter to. If possible, warning letters should be delivered to the violator, that is, the person or persons in breach of the corporation's governing documents. The warning letters should give the violator a reasonable opportunity to end the violation and should clearly describe the consequences of a failure to do so. The most common consequence will be the condominium corporation would take further enforcement steps and may be required to seek assistance of legal counsel for this purpose. In many cases, the next step would be the delivery of one or more legal letters, letters from legal counsel. The ultimate remedy will depend on the specific violation, but would normally be either a court proceeding or an application to the condominium tribunal, authority tribunal or mediation or arbitration. Cheryl will be speaking about those ultimate remedies later in this presentation. Finally, your warning letters should normally say that such enforcement costs can be considerable and may be claimed by the corporation and perhaps added to the common expenses of the unit. If the unit at issue is tenant occupied, all letters should normally be sent to both the owner and the tenant. The owner should also be advised that he or she is jointly responsible for all violations by the tenant and all costs and expenses incurred or suffered by the corporation as a result of those violations. The owner should be further advised that those costs and expenses may be added to the owner's common expenses, assuming the declaration allows that. The owner should be asked to take all steps available as a landlord and as an owner in the corporation to resolve the violations of the tenant. Number three, think about what information is needed to resolve the matter. If you're dealing with an issue that requires further information, it's okay to send the letter to put the owner on notice that a certain issue has come up and that the board or management will be investigating the matter. Investigation is another key part of these initial stages, and that'll be touched on later in this presentation by Jim. This may happen, for instance, where there's an issue between two or more different units. If the corporation receives a complaint, the corporation may often need to investigate it. Sending out a letter at this initial stage can help facilitate that investigation by making other parties involved aware of the issue and prompting their input and cooperation. But here it's not just about whether the corporation has enough information. It's also important to make sure that your letter includes enough information so that the owner and the tenant, if applicable, understand the problem and the action that needs to be taken to resolve the matter. How the dialogue proceeds and how helpful this initial correspondence is really depends on the reasonable efforts and particip participation of all involved, equipped with the right information, working together toward a resolution. In addition to warning letters, it may also be appropriate to think about what other resources are available to the condominium corporation to address the issue. For instance, noise or parking violations, uh, the city bylaw can be a helpful resource. For short-term rentals, you may want to have your rules registered with the city. In certain situations, it may be necessary to seek professional advice. Again, investigation will be discussed later in this presentation. In summary, at the outset of a new matter and throughout the process of resolving it, it's important to assess and reassess what action is reasonable in the circumstances. Warning letters can be a good initial tool to work toward resolving an issue, but it is important to be mindful of the content of your letters and the parties involved. Finally, there may be other tools that can help in certain circumstances. Again, others will be speaking about those other tools later in this presentation. That's all for me. Thank you, Nancy. Fantastic, Nicole. Thank you so much. And it's a great overview to get us started. I'll just uh, send a quick reminder out to everybody because these are our condo crunches, we're not able to take questions during our session today. Uh, it's just a delivery of information. If you do have questions through the session, you can either reach out to any of us on the call later on uh, uh, on condo specific issues, or of course, uh, we do have Q&As that come up in the future. If you're having a technical issue, you can go ahead and send me a message in the chat and I'll do our best to resolve it. Uh, but we can't take condo specific issues or questions today. That's going to lead into our next speaker today. Our next speaker is David. And early on in the process, you may discover that you have certain uh, challenges that you may need to be thinking about whether other parties than just the offenders or the uh, those doing the infractions may need to be considered to be involved. So David, I'm going to turn it over to you to talk about whether it may make sense some time to involve other, involve, sorry, other parties. 
Yes, thank you, Nancy. So uh, my topic is about instances in which you may need to involve other parties. Um, specifically, I'm going to talk about the public guardian trustee, or as I like to call them, the PGT, later on in my presentation. On some occasions, the issue of non-compliance to the Condo Act or the corporation's governing documents originate from an issue of mental incapacity. In those situations, the involvement of other parties, such as the PGT, may be necessary. At the outset, I want to say that these issues are very challenging situations that are not resolved easily. When you're dealing with an enforcement issue that has a mental health or a mental incapacity component, consideration has to be made for both the resident or owner that's exhibiting the non-compliant behavior and also for the neighboring owners or residents whose ability to enjoy their units or the common elements may be negatively affected by the non-compliant behavior. When we're dealing with these types of situations, the first thing to consider is to whether or not there is anyone or any organization that can help that individual with the mental health challenge. You may ask why to focus on trying to help that individual when that individual is exhibiting non-compliant behavior. Well, sometimes the most effective enforcement mechanism is to get help for that individual. For example, if you're dealing with a resident that is hoarding items inside their unit and that behavior is causing health and safety issues that's affecting neighboring units, this type of matter can sometimes be readily rectified if a family member or a family friend is identified who can come in and help rectify the situation. In these types of circumstances, the chance for a long-term permanent solution to the issue is significantly increased. Unfortunately, there can be situations in which individuals having mental health challenges that exhibit such non-compliant behaviors do not have the benefit of a family member or a family friend to assist them. In those cases, local social services may be able to provide some assistance. So if we take the example of the clutter situation I talked about earlier, in those types of situations, there may be a local social organization that may be able to come in and assist. So when you're dealing with these types of situations, don't discount the possibility that there is a local social organization that can help. There can also be instances in which urgent intervention is required due to a crisis situation re resulting in concerns for the safety of persons or property at the condominium. For those types of crisis situations, the police or other local public authorities may be of assistance. However, it's good to note that their involvement will likely only be of a temporary help during instances of acute misbehavior on the part of a specific owner or resident. If an owner's behavior or a resident's behavior is of sufficient concern, in other words, if, they, uh, if their behavior is a danger to themselves or others, the police do have powers under the Mental Health Act to apprehend that person and bring them to a doctor or a designated hospital for a psychiatric assessment. There is also a process to have such individuals be committed for an assessment without the initial involvement of the police. And this can be done by way of an application to the justice of the peace. However, the process requires detailed evidence of a danger and there's no guarantee that the justice of the peace will grant an order committing that person to a psychiatric assessment. And finally, I also wanna note that there is also a process within a court proceeding to have a person ordered to undergo a psychiatric assessment, specifically if there's consideration that the involvement of the PGT may be required. So the topic of the PGT, the involvement of the PGT is typically the place of last resort. This is when there is no one else, family or friends who are willing or able to help that individual in question. And in our experience, we commonly deal with the PGT when issues become a matter before the courts. Condo corporations have a duty under the act to ensure the safety and security of all residents. And when the non-compliant resident or owner has a possible mental health challenge, 
that does not disqualify them from being subject to compliance actions. However, it does mean that an additional considerations must be had with respect to their circumstances. And this is where the PGT's involvement often comes in within the role of a litigation guardian. Now, a litigation guardian is someone, or in the case uh, of the PGT, uh, an organization or a party that is responsible, responsible for looking after the rights and interests of a party who may not have capacity to understand the legal proceeding. If the respondent in a compliance application does not or does not appear to have capacity to understand what's going on, there is an obligation to take the following steps. One, to arrange for a capacity assessment for that individual, if it is necessary, to determine whether that individual has or does not have sufficient capacity before the legal proceeding. And two, if the litigation guardian is to be the PGT and court order is required appointing the PGT as a litigation guardian. These steps, unfortunately, do take some time, but they are mandatory if these types of issues arise. So once the public guardian trustee is appointed, they will then be responsible for looking after the rights of that individual within the context of that uh, legal proceeding. So I am very mindful of the time that I have, and I'm very limited in uh, the breadth of knowledge I can speak on this issue. But if there's a few things that I want everyone to take away from this subject today, they are as follows. One, when you're dealing with non-compliant behavior that may have a mental health challenge component, sometimes the most effective approach to deal with these enforcement issues is to recruit the assistance of that individual's friends or family. You may find that non-compliance gets resolved very quickly or expediently if uh, those who are close to that individual come in to help. Two, in crisis situations or situations in which there is a risk of harm to others or to property, the police or some other public authority may be the appropriate authority to call to protect everyone involved. And finally, three, the public guardian trustee, so the PGT, is an avenue of last resort, particularly if the individual does not have family members or friends who are willing to assist. If specifically legal action, uh, compliance action is required and the respondent does not have anyone to assist them, the public guardian trustee may be essential to ensure that compliance, uh, the compliance action can proceed. And with that, Nancy, those are my comments. Great, David, thank you so much. So as you can see, folks, we do have many issues uh, in which we sometimes have to get third parties involved, whether it's a family member, a public guardian and trustee, uh, or a litigation guardian. And there are also, fortunately, other remedies that we can be thinking about in various cases. And that's where we're gonna turn it over to Jim. So Jim, you have some other remedies, some other ideas that we can be thinking of in these challenging situations. I'm gonna turn it over to you. Yes, thank you very much, Nancy. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks so much to all of you for joining us. As Nancy was saying, my topic is other enforcement tools, which is essentially a grab bag of other enforcement options available to condominium corporations. So I'm going to start off with inspections of units and exclusive use common elements. In my view, an inspection is really is a really important step to consider anytime you think you might be dealing with a problem inside a unit or inside an exclusive use common area. For instance, you might be concerned about, here's a list, hoarding, uh, an insect infestation like cockroaches or bed bugs, a fire code violation such as missing or inoperative smoke alarms or CO detectors, or improper wiring, or an unclean fireplace flue. Uh, you might be concerned about an unauthorized modification, flooring installations that possibly violate the declaration or rules, unauthorized cannabis growing, an extra home in the unit, like an added living space in the basement, illegal sleeping areas in a basement, pets that violate the uh, governing documents, Complaints about excessive odor or smoke or noise, excessive humidity or mold, inadequate temperature, etc. Of course, the list goes on. 
What I'm really saying is I'm thinking of essentially anything inappropriate or possibly inappropriate that is going on or may be going on inside a unit or in an exclusive use common element. Now you have the right and many times the obligation to inspect. This right is under section 19 of the Condominium Act and is typically also found in provisions of the declaration and rules. You must provide reasonable prior notice. What is reasonable will depend upon the circumstances. If possible, I like the idea of giving at least one week's notice, but 48 hours notice should usually be sufficient. Of course, in an emergency, prior notice is not necessary. Notice can be provided after an emergency inspection is completed. Where there is a tenant, be sure to give notice to both the tenant and the landlord. Be sure to bring along experts whenever appropriate, like an engineer or a plumber or an experienced contractor or an electrician or a sound expert, depending upon the issues. When you do bring along experts, be sure to mention in your notice that an expert will be entering. When appropriate, you can also invite public officials, police, members of the fire department, members of the local health department to attend your inspection. However, I should say in my experience, those public officials typically won't agree to become involved in unless it's a very serious case. Whenever possible, have at least two people enter during the inspection. This reduces the risk of an allegation of damage or theft from the owner or occupant. In the notice, be sure to also say that photos may be taken if that's your plan. And you can also say that the photos will be used strictly for the objects and duties of the condominium corporation and will not be used in any other way. If you don't have a key and if the occupant does not facilitate entry, you can be assisted by a locksmith. However, if the owner or occupant refuses or blocks entry, never physically force your way in. In those cases, you will need a court order and the court order will also typically direct the police to assist as needed. In many cases, inspection costs can be charged back to the owner, but this can depend upon the circumstances. In most cases, I like the idea of including a warning in the notice that the related inspection costs might be charged back to the owner, depending upon the results of the inspection. So in summary, inspections are really important enforcement tools available to condominium corporations, and inspections are very important to consider in many cases. Inspections are also a really fundamental, important way to gather evidence to uh, come to understand the nature of any violations. Okay, here's my list of other inspection tools. Surveillance cameras, and sometimes even fake surveillance cameras. Surveillance cameras can really help with deterrence and with promotion of safety, security, and compliance. In general, the board has the mandate under Section 97 of the Condominium Act to decide whether or not to install surveillance cameras if the board deems this necessary for safety or security. Note that residents generally don't have the right to install cameras uh, viewing the common elements without the corporation's consent and also subject to any required owner involvement under sections 98 and 97 of the Condominium Act. Some condominiums are following these procedures to permit video doorbells, but usually subject to careful restrictions in terms of what the video doorbell can see, and how the uh, recordings are to be kept and that sort of thing. If the board decides to have surveillance cameras, normally this requires warning signs posted on, posted on the property, warning that the common elements are under video surveillance, but only for fulfillment of the objects and duties of the condominium corporation. One last note on surveillance cameras, they are generally not permitted in locations where someone would have a reasonable expectation of privacy, which is, I think, obvious, like washrooms and change rooms. In rare safety and security cases, I think you can sometimes consider a hidden surveillance camera, specifically designed to stop or to catch an offender. I recall one case where a hidden camera was used to catch someone 
who was repeatedly pouring oil in the stairwells of a high-rise condominium. I think you might also consider a hidden camera if someone is repeatedly defacing common elements or damaging common elements in particular locations. So again, in rare cases, you might consider a hidden or undisclosed camera. Surveillance by the police is another possibility that sometimes comes up. In general, the police do not have the right to carry out surveillance, surveillance operations on a condominium's common elements because of the privacy rights of the residents. However, the board can permit police surveillance on the common elements if the board is satisfied that the police surveillance is consistent with the objects and duties of the condominium corporation. For instance, if the alleged criminal activity would also constitute a safety or security concern or a violation of the corporation's declaration bylaws or rules. What about help from public officials like municipal bylaw officers or health officials? This is something that Nicole touched on. You can sometimes get help from public officials. For instance, municipal parking officials can issue parking tickets on private property like condominium property. And in the case of a condominium, they can issue tickets if they're satisfied that there is a violation of the condominium's rules. Private citizens can also be appointed by the municipality as parking control deputies, parking control officers, allowing them to ticket and arrange for towing of vehicles. There are parking control firms that have such deputies and many condominium corporations hire them to provide parking control on condominium property. In appropriate cases, you can also ask for help from the police or from the fire department or from public health authorities or from municipal property standards enforcement. But in general, I think you'll find that public officials seem to mainly prefer to leave condominium corporations to deal with issues that come up on condominium properties, except in very serious cases. In very serious cases, they will sometimes get involved. Another tool I wanna to mention, self-help which essentially means correcting a violation and charging the cost back to the owner. Here are some examples. Arranging for an improperly parked vehicle to be towed, reversing an unauthorized common element modification, cleaning up a messy rear yard, attending to other maintenance or repair that has been neglected by an owner. Two notes on self-help. In general, be sure to give plenty of warning, lots of opportunities to the owner or the uh, occupant before exercising self-help. Secondly, never get into fisticuffs with the owner or resident. I remember one case where a condominium super, superintendent was trying to remove an unauthorized window air conditioner from a second floor window while using a ladder from the outside. And the superintendent ended up in a swinging match with the resident in the open window. So never let it go that far. If the resident blocks your efforts, stop and seek legal advice. And in those cases, you will probably need a court order. Another tool I want to talk about, collection, collection of costs. In many cases, you should be able to collect some, perhaps all, of the corporation's costs. This will depend upon the particular circumstances. Sometimes in order to collect costs, you may need an order, a court order or an order of the condominium authority tribunal or an arbitration award. Sometimes you may have a direct right to lien for the costs without a, uh, an order of that sort. But this normally really applies if you can uh, characterize the costs as repair or maintenance carried out on behalf of the owner or if the costs are an insurance deductible for which the owner is responsible, or if the costs otherwise can be characterized as common expenses. Anyway, collection of some or all of the costs is always an important consideration. In most cases, I think collecting some or all of the costs from the owner is an important enforcement tool because of the deterrent effect. However, Sometimes it may be tactically most wise to forego collection of some or maybe even all of the costs in order to resolve a matter. In some cases, fighting for costs can end up being more costly and more problematic 
than recovering the costs themselves. Finally, I want to say, remember the status certificates. Anytime you have outstanding claims or potential claims against an owner, including any concern about a problem inside a unit, it's normally important to include mention of those matters in any status certificate issued for the unit. That is, if the owner is uh, deciding to sell. There you go, Nats. Those are my comments. Fabulous, Jim. Thank you so much. Amazing tools out there. Remember on a case-by-case -case basis to carefully examine each of them. As Nicole was saying either, uh, earlier, exercise careful judgment, particularly if you're looking at costs, because yes, we definitely want to try and keep uh, get those costs back. But in many cases, you have to carefully analyze where your right to recovery lies. It's not necessarily automatically through a lien or through collection. We may have to go cat, you may have to go court. Uh, it's not a simple matter in each case. So fantastic, Jim. Okay, we're going to turn over to our next issue, which is assuming that your remedies that Jim outlined or your letters that Nicole talked about did not result in resolution and you do have to think about where to go next. Cheryl's going to do a high level overview for us, very high level overview of the various forums that you'll be considering when you get to this step. Over to you, Cheryl. Thanks, Nancy. Okay, if all else fails and you need to move enforcement to the next level, where do you go? There are several different forums where disputes can go, including mediation or arbitration, the condominium authority tribunal, court, or the human rights tribunal. Each of these forums could have their own condo, condo crunch session to review them. So for today's purposes, I'm going to look at each forum briefly to give a sense of the type of disputes that would be resolved in each forum. I'm going to start with mediation and arbitration. So Section 132 of the Condominium Act says that mediation and arbitration are mandatory for many types of condominium disputes, including disagreements with owners respecting the declaration bylaws or rules. Unless the dispute is one that falls under the jurisdiction of the condominium tribunal, which we will get to. Notice that I specifically said owners, disputes with owners or disagreements with owners, and I did not mention a breach of the act. Over the years, it has been confirmed that disputes related to a breach of the act or disputes involving tenants can properly proceed to court in most cases. Here are a couple of examples of enforcement type disputes that would go to mediation or arbitration. Managing a dispute between owners, if there's a dispute between neighbors, that is a situation where you might end up in mediation. Um, dispute with owners about actions taken by the board or the authority of the board under the corporation's bylaws would be a situation where mediation or arbitration would apply. And also a dispute with an owner about a Section 98 agreement. This is an agreement entered into when an owner uh, makes a modification to the common elements. There are, of course, other types of disputes that fall under this forum, um, other enforcement types disputes and disputes with respect to shared facilities, management agreements, and so on. Um, Depending on the circumstances, mediation or arbitration procedures can be quite cumbersome and slow, and they can be quite expensive. One thing condominium corporations can consider is passing a bylaw to regulate the procedures under mediation and arbitration. These types of bylaws can streamline the process and provide helpful guidance if you get into a situation where you need this forum. In most cases, mediation and arbitration will likely be a last resort after you've um, tried all the strategies that uh, my colleagues mentioned earlier. However, depending on the type of dispute, mediation can be very a good, very good way to bring people together and talk settlement. The next forum I'm going to look at is the Condominium Authority Tribunal, which I'll be referring to by its common abbreviation, the CAT. The Condominium Act confirms that certain types of disputes can only be resolved by application to the CAT. A key point to note is that only certain parties can commence a dispute at the CAT. These are the Condominium Corporation, an owner or a mortgagee of a unit, and in limited circumstances, a purchaser. An occupier of a unit um, that's not an owner cannot start a CAT application. However, they can be a respondent in an application. 
The Condominium Authority Tribunal jurisdiction has expanded since its inception in 2017. In, at that time, it was just hearing uh, records disputes. Now it hears many different types of disputes, including enforcement disputes, and it will continue to expand. I'm not going to review a comprehensive list of the disputes that would fall under the CAT. If you are looking for additional information, and I don't cover it right here, we have blogged on CAT jurisdiction most recently in December, and I think Nancy can put that into the chat for us. Um, there's also um, the most recent condo contact newsletter by CCI Eastern Ontario was all about the CAT. So there is an article in there by Victoria Crane of our office that discusses the jurisdiction of the CAT there too. I am going to give a couple of examples of disputes that would go to CAT in enforcement situations. So disputes related to unreasonable nuisances, annoyances or disruption, um, disputes relating to provisions in a condominium corporation's declaration bylaws or rules that are specifically related to pets or other animals, vehicles, parking or storage, um, or unreasonable noise, odor, light, vibration, smoke, or vapor that might cause a nuisance, disruption, or annoyance. So th that's a very quick list, but again, you can refer to the blog for to have that set out. Um, examples of these would be an owner, say an owner has two dogs and the corporation's governing documents restrict them to having one dog. Um, if the uh, owner or occupant refuses to remove the dog, uh, then you would end up at cat. If an owner or occupier is parking in visitor parking, contrary to the corporation's rules, the dispute, if not resolved, would go to the cat. And finally, if an owner is smoking in a unit contrary to rules, um, cat would uh, oversee that dispute as well. So with the expanding jurisdiction, more and more enforcement matters will end up at the cat. Next, I'm going to look at uh, court and in particular court applications. So while the CAT and mediation and arbitration are mandatory for a number of condominium disputes, there are still circumstances where a court application would be uh, your best option. Um, in particular, mandatory mediation and arbitration does not apply to violations of the Condominium Act or disputes with tenants. Additionally, the CAT hears very limited disputes that relate to breaches of the Act. So if you have a breach of the Act or a dispute with tenants, there are circumstances where the court might be your best forum. A couple of key examples that would result in a court application in enforcement matters would be a violation of Section 117 sub 1 of the Act, where a condition or activity is likely to damage the property of the corporation or the assets of the corporation or cause injury or illness to an individual. And illness to an individual has also been um, found to include psychological impact on someone as well. So essentially, if something goes beyond mere nuisance and specifically any issues with violence would bring you to court. Another example of an enforcement matter at court would be a violation of Section 98 of the Act. As I mentioned earlier, Section 98 um, governs modifications to the common elements by owners. Um, if an owner uh, completes a modification to the common element and has not followed the procedure in Section 98, then you would likely uh, end up in uh, court if you couldn't resolve it beforehand. And then finally, disputes with a tenant that doesn't fall under the specific CAT jurisdiction categories would result in a court application. Finally, another forum that I want to mention as disputes do end up here is the Human Rights Tribunal. This forum reviews and resolves disputes related to complaints of discrimination under the Human Rights Code. The Human Rights Code applies to condominium corporations and can supersede some of the provisions in its governing documents. A clear example would be a no pets provision. If a person requires a guide dog due to vision loss, they would be permitted to have the dog in their unit despite a no pet provision. I flagged this forum just to remind condominium corporations to carefully consider any requests for accommodation that are received, especially in the time that a dispute arises. Um, if there is a duty to accommodate, a condominium corporation must accommodate to the point of undue hardship. So this is a consideration to keep in mind during enforcement matters. In summary, I, there are a number of forums where disputes can be resolved if, if necessary. 
All of these forms will result in costs being incurred. While there is some provision for cost recovery, it's rarely 100%. As a result, using the strategies that Nicole, David, and Jim discussed are very important. Finally, if you do end up needing to escalate a dispute to one of these forums, it's very important to consider which forum to bring it to so that you pick the correct forum. There can be cost consequences for proceeding in the wrong forum. I think you were uh, giving me the nod to come back on there, Cheryl. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Cheryl. It can be tricky to decide which forum to go to. And in some cases, the forums may overlap. Uh, so again, one of those other situations where judgment is going to be very important. So Cheryl, thank you so much for that. So we're going to turn to our last speaker today. I'm going to invite Melinda to come and join us. And Melinda's going to walk us through some special considerations in dealing with violent and harassment issues uh, in the enforcement context. Melinda, I'm going to turn it over to you. Awesome. Thank you, Nancy. So we wanted to get into this topic because um, safety and security is obviously top of mind for everyone in the industry right now in the wake of the Vaughn tragedy. I'm not going to get into detail about that specific situation because we're talking about enforcement today, but enforcement does bring up um, considerations of safety and violence because boards and, and managers are in a demanding position. And by that, I mean it, the Condominium Act um, clearly tells us that corporations have an obligation, so the managers have and boards have an obligation to enforce compliance with the condominiums governing documents. And a natural result of that obligation is that boards and managers are then required to come into contact with some of the most difficult people in the condominium community. And the risk with that is that these people will um, bring with them the risk of potential violence. I'm not saying they will be violent, but there's always that risk of potential violence or the situation escalating. So boards and managers are legally bound to be involved in these situations with the potential for escalation. And in our view, ensuring safety um, in the condominium is really the new priority focus in our industry right now. In my view, this raises two key issues. The first is that we're considering ways to manage enforcement to avoid escalation. And the second is that we're also having to come up with new ways to deal with difficult owners and residents. And often those two issues go hand in hand. But the solution, and you've heard it touched on throughout um, the presentations today, the solution to both of those issues it really comes down to sound judgment calls. I know it's nothing new, this idea of using sound judgment um, when making decisions in the condominium context, but I'll get to my point in, in a little while on that. So with respect to the first issue that I identified, avoiding escalation, I think it's easy um, to want to take a hard line when you're dealing with enforcement issues. Um, condominiums have very access to very powerful um, options that my colleagues have described to you already today. Condominiums are also dealing with a constant barrage of problems and issues that are being brought to the managers and the boards. So it's easy to wanna go from zero to 100 very quickly to try and nip these problems in the bed. But the courts have been very clear that the key is in, in these enforcement issues to, is to ensure that the solution the condominium pursues is appropriate for the issue at hand. And the point is that this helps avoid the risk of the situation escalating to something more volatile than it probably needs to be. And again, it, this really comes down to sound judgment in terms of managing the response. With respect to dealing with difficult owners or potentially volatile situations, there's a number of strategies available. Some of the things that we have been employing in the past that we're now talking about more frequently with our clients are things like having a safety plan in place for directors and managers. So to the extent possible, it's important that we don't advertise where directors live. I know it's easy in some communities to figure out who lives where, but regardless of that, it's important not to advertise it. So we want to um, try to use the manager's office address for um, where you're required to give an address for a director or something like that. 
It's also important to protect identifying unit number information. So we don't want to be advertising in things like minutes or newsletters. Who owns what unit? That's information that needs to be redacted or kept confidential in other ways. Um, we're also talking in terms of safety of managers and directors. Um, if you are doing in-person board meetings, having a safety plan in place where the door isn't opened during that meeting, um, if owners need to attend the meeting for some reason, that attendance needs to be planned ahead of time. The other option is to be doing your meetings virtually. That helps address basically an unwanted surprise happening in the middle of your meeting. We're also talking more about using virtual AGMs for meetings that have the potential to be volatile. Um, so avoiding having people congregating in one place for a volatile situation is the point there. We're also talking more frequently with our clients about communication protocols for difficult owners. And by this, I mean owners that engage in harassing or violent communication towards the managers or the boards. Um, the point of a communication protocol is that it limits the person's contact. Um, and they're limited to, to communication in writing. So they don't, unless it's an emergency, but they don't get the luxury of a phone call or direct emails to the board or the managers, or sorry, direct personal communication with the, the board or the managers. The point is that you were trying to remove that instant result that sometimes difficult owners are looking for when they, they're trying to engage directly with um, the manager or a board member to try and get that rise out of um, the person in their communication. Um, some of the newer points that we've been talking about, the main one that we've really been um, discussing within our office is involving consultants like security experts or experts in the area of mental health and crisis intervention. So involving those types of ex experts for consultations with boards to help boards decide what the most appropriate way to navigate certain situations are. We've also been talking um, with certain clients about increasing security measures. So heightened presence of security personnel on site if the situation warrants it, or as Jim was talking about, um, increased use of security cameras and things like that. Another idea that we're talking about within our firm at the very least is um, this idea of nonviolent crisis intervention training. So this is training that typically public facing people, people in hospitals, community rec centers would take. It helps you develop a set of skills basically to um, manage um, a crisis situation to help it from escalating higher into something worse. So we're not talking about training to, to respond to violent situations. The response there is obviously to call the police. But in situations where there's you're interacting with someone who's in crisis, there's a set of skills that can be employed to help um, manage the situation without escalating it. And so that's something that we're considering um, and exploring within our office. And it's also something that may be helpful eventually for managers to consider as well. But the bottom line of all of this is that I'd love to be able to say that there's one easy magic solution that we can all look towards, but it, it's just, it's not that simple because dealing with enforcement and volatile situations is always a nuanced um, situation. And so it really is going to come down to assessing the particular circumstances of each um, situation that you're presented with. Um, and that's all going to come down to a judgment call in terms of when to employ the, the measures that are available. But in my view, it's not realistic to think that boards and managers are trained to respond to every um, situation that they're going to be presented with. So my point of all of this, when we're talking about judgment and the available remedies is that boards need to be empowered to take the appropriate steps to involve experts and consultants who have the particular expertise needed in the, the circumstances to manage the situation safely and who can help give the board the guidance to make those key judgment calls to ensure safety on the property. So in, an, in our view, it's really important for condominiums to start thinking about budgeting for 
this type of consultation service that may be needed. Um, the reality the, and the point there is just that we don't want boards to be faced with a situation where they're having to choose between needing to involve a consultant, but not having the money to do so or being afraid of facing criticism from owners for having made that type of expenditure. So I'll leave it at that um, for my comments and I'll pass it over to you, Nancy. Terrific, Melinda. And I know that we had a lot of uh, reach out in the chat saying these comments are very helpful and very useful for boards. Uh, so just a couple of things that we're going to be doing in the future. We're working with other leaders in the industry as well, uh, as the entire industry does want to come together and try and find ways to support managers and boards uh, in the challenges that are that we're seeing more and more these days. Uh, so watch for upcoming podcasts specific to this issue. Also watch for blogs specific to this issue. But this particular session is also going to be on a blog. And, and again, Melinda's comments will be part of that blog. So watch for our next podcast. Sorry podcast, not blog. Watch for our next podcast with this particular session on it, and then watch for specific podcasts in the future on this particular issue as well. So Melinda, thank you so much. A really uh, difficult topic that we're all facing right now. Thanks, Nancy. Okay, folks, so that brings us to the end of our session. We had record turnout today. We know it's a really important issue. So again, watch for our upcoming podcast. Uh, it'll So this session gets turned into a podcast. So you'll be able to listen to this one and then watch for our very specific ones on violence and harassment issues uh, in the condominium context. Also, we did have someone ask us before the session started, where can we get violence and harassment policies? These are a good stepping stone, a good groundwork uh, for dealing with these issues going forward. We do have violence and harassment policies at our office and we also have rules. So the violence and harassment policy, which we also then pass a rule to extend those policies to owners and others in the community that may not be caught under the violence and harassment policies. So you can reach out to any member of our team uh, to discuss violence and harassment policies and rules. That wraps our session up today. Thank you so much for attending. Watch for our March 2023 condo crunch. If you have any suggestions on topics, again, don't hesitate to reach out to any of our team uh, if there's a particular topic in mind. And in the meantime, time watch for our other podcasts and blogs on uh, key issues. Again, thanks everyone for attending. I wish you a terrific rest of your day and hopefully in the East Ontario region, we're looking at the end of our snow. Be safe, be well, see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Conopedia is brought to you by Davidson Hu Allen, a boutique condominium law firm servicing Eastern Ontario. You can find more about our firm on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn or on our website at davidsonconolaw.ca. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended to provide legal opinion or advice, which cannot be given without knowing the facts of a specific situation. Use of this podcast does not establish a solicitor and client relationship. The intro and outro music is provided by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com.